0: Show me the magic and I take you out to the picture. Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the
1: movie. <laughs> what a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1978's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a rather unique jukebox musical starring Peter Frampton as Billy Shears and the Bee Gees as, and this could immediately do with some dissecting, Mark, Dave and Bob Henderson, who make up his backing band. Together, they are propelled to stardom and succumb to the sins and excesses of a rock and roll lifestyle leaving their sweet and, for some reason, magical American hometown of Heartland open to corruption from creepy wrongdoer and evil robot wrangler, Mr. Mustard, played by Frankie Howard. (laughs) Now, we don't normally do this, but the film has so much to dissect uh, here. I wondered whether it would be a good place to start if we just collectively try to piece together the story as we understand it from start to finish. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, this would be good. Is that fair? <laughs> because it feels like there's, there's there are a lot of moments in here that don't necessarily deserve us unpicking, but it's worth calling out. <laughs> sure. So jump in if, if you feel like I miss anything or if there's anything that you want to pitch in on. But the story, as I understand it, is that the film... Opens in 1918. Right, yep. With Sergeant Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club band winning the war through marching band music. Uh, yes. Yes, okay, good. Through celebration of that achievement the music of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is celebrated throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Yes, the one song that they... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. It's just everyone doing different decade-style dancing but to the same song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until Sergeant Pepper's death in 1958. Right. At which point he bequeaths his magical instruments to the town of Heartland. Yeah. Then we jump forward 20 years because obviously the song says 20 years ago today. So obviously we are now currently up to date and we're in 1978. Yeah, it was 20 years ago today that Sergeant Pepper died. <laughs> <laughs> Famously, <laughs> how the song yeah. goes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and we have uh, the Bee Gees playing the bandstand in uh, Heartland. Uh, they invite Peter Frampton on as Billy Shears. We know that he is Billy Shears because he's wearing bright white dungarees with the name Billy on them. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of this, we have a narrator Played by a, a, a very old George Burns, yep. who is basically one of the only voices that we hear in the entire film between songs.
2: I think I think he is literally the only person who speaks any dialogue. He's the narrator. Yes, he's the only person who speaks any dialogue throughout the film. Everything else is sung. Yes,
1: uh, he also, for reasons unknown, has his own dream sequence where he sings "Fixing a Hole." Oh yeah, that's right. With small children. Yep.
2: I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering Where it will go
1: <laughs> And then, whilst the band are playing Getting Better, we are introduced to Mean Mr. Mustard. Mm-hmm. I, I there, This is a point of interest, that Mean Mr. Mustard pulls up in his big van and we know that it's a point of interest because the weather vane in Heartland does a boing noise (laughs) when it happens. Yep. (laughs) Peter Frampton wakes up... uh, Sorry, Billy Shears wakes up with his girlfriend, Strawberry Fields, having just done the business in some hay.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, um, they just wake up in a barn. It it could be entirely innocent. They might might have just slept. It is the kind of place... Where people would just sleep in barns. Oh, yes, and... you're
1: right. But Peter Frampton is uh, particularly sexy and shirtless in the scene. True. Yeah, yeah. I think the implication is that it's um, it's it's sort of morning after. Yeah. But you know, you know, this 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 could very well be a perfectly innocent uh, scene because who knows yet whether or not this film is actually just for kids. <laughs> it's it's not. <laughs> um, uh, they are essentially they they're given. Uh, the opportunity to sign a record contract in Hollywood yeah yeah they travel there by hot air balloon yep then uh, Donald Pleasance plays their very much unpleasant agent business manager who signs them uh, after plying them with huge amounts of alcohol and and possibly by extension drugs yes Yeah, yeah then at that point Peter Frampton Billy Shears gets very excited while watching the rest of his bandmates essentially have an orgy Mm-hmm. And cheats on his childhood sweetheart, Shortby Fields, by being tempted into a uh, a, a record vinyl shaped bed uh, with I think it's
2: Lucy at the time, or maybe it's a different. I'm not, I wasn't completely sure, but yeah, let's no. say it's Lucy. I think it probably. Okay. is.
1: So and then back in Heartland, Frankie Howard, me, Mister Mustard, is is uh, well, taking advantage of the magical instruments that Sergeant Pepper has left the town, village, and mm. essentially opening up that whole place to sort of corruption. One of the heavy set brutes that he um employs to, to sort of do this is Lurch from Adam's family. Uh is it? I didn't realise that was, but yes. no, you're absolutely right, of course it is. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, that, just immediately I was like Lurch <laughs> Strawberry Fields turns up in LA. Yep. Immediately has some sort of dream vision of Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees Watching Lucy and the Diamonds play a song.
2: Was it Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? They play. I think it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. it
1: is Lucy's. Yeah.
2: So she has a vision of a, a, a woman who she has never met yes. in real life. Yes. <laughs> uh, who then it happens does exist in real life, but she's never yes. met her. But she's able to conjure her out of her imagination, and then it turns out the exact same woman does exist and has a similar relationship with uh, her partner than she feared. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, so so that happens. Uh, then she arrives in the studio whilst Robin Gibb is pl- performing Oh Darling. Yeah. There's a big confrontation, but then also not really much of a confrontation because I think it kind of... Peter Framson's just happy to see her. Kind of, And they, yeah. they just kind of gloss
2: over the fact that he slept with someone else. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Um, and, and then Steve Martin's
2: in the film. <laughs> yeah, for about five minutes and he yeah. sings a song, which is essentially him, again, doing... I'm not sure which is the order that came out, but... He's doing like the dentist thing from Little Shop of Horrors. This is
1: this is his first. This is his film debut. Oh, so it's before Little Shop of Horrors. Must be, yeah, right, yeah.
2: Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, but it's very,
1: very similar. It feels like the his dentist role in that film is almost almost based on the same sort of character that he's employing here in this
2: role. Right, yeah. He's playing like uh, he's singing Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and he's called Doctor Maxwell Edison.
1: John was quizzical, studied pataphysical, science.
0: In the home, late night, all alone with a tattoo. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Maxwell Edison, majoring in medicine, calls her on the phone.
2: Can I take you out of the pictures? Oh, ho, ho. But as she's getting ready, I think the idea is they've had, they were supposed to go and see him for some kind of procedure. And then they kind of do and then they disappear and then that's kind of it. Then you never see him again. I'm not sure what purpose he was supposed to serve in the film.
1: No, there's a lot of that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: because immediately, follow, <laughs> immediately following this scene is Alice Cooper singing Because. Mm. I must admit, now I'm I'm failing to
2: recall what his role in the film was. So he, uh, Alice Cooper is playing a sort of cult leader. Right. And so... He is sort of inculcating this cult with this idea, uh, this maxim of uh, we hate love, we hate joy, we love money. Uh, for what reason, I forget. Yeah, he seems to be sort of making them in a factory or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the best I can uh, do.
1: And then the band return to Heartland and perform for the benefit, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yeah. Yeah. Then they just watch Earth and Wind and Fire perform got to get you into my life.
2: Yeah, it was by far the best bit of the entire film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah. Then Frankie Howard sings When I'm 64 having kidnapped Strawberry Fields. Yes. And is
2: being I, th- I think it's fair to say quite rapey. Oh, yeah. That scene, I mean he's right? got a, he's got tied up in a van, yeah. yeah I mean yeah. Yeah. That- And but also like, yeah,
1: is 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 acting sort of very sort of sexually aggressive towards her even for Frankie Howard who's you know, his, his, his whole shtick is, is just campy TV entertainer. Mm, yeah, true. Strawberry Fields at one point joins in on that song as well, singing lyrics that make no
2: sense to her predicament at that time. Yeah, that's right. It's the send me a postcard, drop me a line. Yeah. Stating point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Quite why, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, yeah.
1: And then they arrive at some sort of evil lair where Aerosmith come on play Come Together. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like a villainous band in all of this yep. um, by association. Yep. Like, not by deed, because I don't, I don't really do anything villainous. They're just
2: there. True. I, th- I think the way that is conveyed is that, as we said during the All Together Now episode, Come Together is a very sleazy song. Yeah. And um, Aerosmith perform it in quite a sleazy way. Uh, mm. And they sort of give across the idea that they are a sleazy band. Yes. Uh, so it kind of works. In yes. general. Yeah. 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 And then on stage,
1: uh, Strawberry Fields is... Shackled to some big stage prop that yeah. doesn't really make it's a big S, I think it's like a dollar sign. I'm guessing, Probably. I'm not totally so sure. Yeah, there's a big fight that breaks out. Um, she accidentally kills Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith by pushing mm-hmm. him over the edge of this massive stage. She then faints, um, from the fact that she's killed him and ends up doing some sort of reverse double backflip, some sort herself off the stage and dying in really the most hilarious way imaginable. Oh, yeah. And she actually dies Yeah, it's quite brutally as well Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it's it, quite vicious it's, it's quite unexpected, yeah Peter Hampton is very upset by this uh, he, he goes into a period of grief The entire band um, uh, Sorry, the entire town grieve Strawberry Fields And they have a funeral procession for her yeah. At that point, Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees Starts singing A Day in the Life Yes Also in grief uh, Peter Frampton Billy, I keep calling him Peter Frampton B- Billy Shears Yeah uh, Then so overcome with grief Decides to Climb out of the Top window Of the house And Jump off To kill himself mm-hmm. At which point The heartland weather Vane, Which is in the shape Of Sergeant Pepper Springs to life And is Billy Preston uh, Famously of the I used to play With the Beatles Billy Preston mm-hmm. um, And starts singing Get back Yep he uses laser magic from his fingers to freeze Billy Shears mid-air, mid-suicide. Mm-hmm. Another laser zap puts him back on top of the house yep. where he is cured of his grief and his depression. And he's just happy to, to be where he was moments ago. Yep. And then Billy Preston using his laser magic and his tippy-tappy toes um, and his dancing not only brings Strawberry Fields back to life without any questions... For some reason, dresses Frankie Howard in bishop's robes. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, and then everyone gets together and sings the Sergeant Pepper reprise. Yep. Uh, at which point, there's an entire roster of semi-famous to entirely obscure famous people mm. uh, joining in the sing-song and yeah.
2: credits. Yeah, yeah.
1: Cool. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. <laughs> if you've, if you, if you, if you have anything you'd like to share with us, uh, feel free to contact <laughs> us on social media. I mean, it's it is nuts. Yep. Right. I I there's there was a reason I think to go through all that. I I there's not much connective tissue between scenes. Mm. I think there's there's something to be said for a film that uses songs to tell a story and is broadly unsuccessful in doing that. But this film does feel like it is very much just pieced together without much sense of what story it's trying to tell, without any sense of what the stakes really are, what the tone is supposed to be, what climax we're building to, whether the the overall resolution makes sense, character
2: arcs, character growth. <laughs> Do you want to pitch in? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yes, I think all of that is fair to say. So things are obviously pieced together. It, it is obviously mainly an excuse to have the songs there. And so I mean, we should draw the distinction between this isn't a musical strictly. It's it, it's it, it's an opera really. Mm. Like it, it, so everything is sung. George Burns says some as the narrator is the only one who speaks any lines. Everything else is sung, it, which actually make when Robin Gibbs sings "Oh Darling," it's it's an aria technically. <laughs> wow. Okay. So <laughs> we're already way off from where I thought we were going to be at this point in the, in the episode. But what this means is um I mean I don't know if you're as familiar with opera as I am. You know, of course. But, um, of course. Uh, uh but no, I mean I, I know very little about opera. But um but I mean what what it does mean from a narrative point of view is that uh even like the standard jukebox musical, you know, that we did an episode before on Across the Universe, which is that is a jukebox musical. Characters are acting and then they uh, sing in order to sort of get themselves through various sort of narrative situations. Where everything is sung, it's much harder to sort of knit these things together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can't really have those moments of character development in between things, which are then in some way uh, resolved or brought forward through song. The entire thing is song. And obviously they're great songs and they're fairly, in general, fairly well performed they're very faithfully performed as cover versions for the yeah. most part
1: and we should uh, probably mention at this point as well that almost all or all but bar one song uh in the soundtrack was produced by george martin yep. as well so even if the songs themselves haven't been faithfully reproduced they've certainly been faithful to the original recording yeah so, you know, and there have been embellishments and there have been, you know, there, there's a lengthening of certain songs and, you know, they go off sort of different tangents and stuff. But oh, on the whole, they retain their same sense of tone and pace and yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're pretty close to the originals. Yeah, I think so.
2: But I think that, that whole structure of the fact that everything is sung means that there are sort of certain narrative uh, choices that it makes and it can't quite ever recover from. So there are th- like sort of big, broad setup things. The idea, to begin with, the idea that um, Sergeant Pepper, there's a tradition in this town where Sergeant Pepper performs and everyone loves it and then Sergeant Pepper dies and they need someone to take over and then the group do take over and that's great and they have the best interests of the town at heart. And then along comes a big money record producer who entices them off to Hollywood. Now, obviously, what the narrative arc would usually be there is that they have lost their way somehow. They've forgotten about their roots. The town really needs them and they've forgotten about it. They've gone off to make money. And that isn't kind of... There's not, And so you're kind of expecting that that is the story that's going to be told and it will resolve itself that way. And it just doesn't. Yeah. You you, you don't get that. Like these narrative threads are not resolved. Uh, They change this way and that from like who you think is... uh, 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 who is acting... Well, I don't mean in the sense of you know like being good actors. I think we can talk a lot about that. But but I think in the sense in the sense of characters uh, acting uh, well and kindly, as opposed to like pe- people with um, malign interests at heart. You know, it, you can't. It, and it's not even in the sense of like an interesting duality at the heart of a character. It's just a very very confused sense of who is performing what function mm. in in the film at large.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Though, like but the idea of there being an arc where the band sort of lose their way, realise they lose their way, and then they come to appreciate their roots uh, by by coming back and fighting for Heartland. That that's a really good example. You're right. It's it's every single thing that gets introduced as a plot element in this film yeah. that doesn't get resolved. Yeah. So it is, um, you know, Billy Shears cheating on his girlfriend, and that causes tension between the two of them, and it doesn't. At all, there's no, there's no sort no. of implication there that that causes an issue that they need to overcome. No, no. M- Mean Mr. Mustard, Frankie Howard doesn't really even get his comeuppance in no, the, really. the film. No, like uh, he's introduced as the the main antagonist. Donald Pleasance is introduced as the uh, as the band's new manager. He tricks them really into signing a contract with him uh, by plying them with alcohol and and his his represented in this film clearly as a as an evil person and the film ends with him just being quite successful at the back of it and he yeah. continues being their manager, I think.
2: Uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> like, just
1: like all of they, all of these things that you think are set up in order to um present obstacles for the band and for them to learn something about themselves or to overcome some kind of challenge and then be better off for it. None of them come to fruition.
2: Yeah one of the things about the way it sort of introduces the Beatles songs into this is with the conceit of Sergeant Pepper being a sort of traditional character who who was sort of around during the wars and went through the generations with this town and then when Sergeant Pepper dies and they need someone to take over it's almost as if the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton are sort of taking on this mantle but sort of Bringing it all up to date, the story it's telling to me is the Beatles versions of these songs were were a bit, a bit old and stayed, and we're bringing them to a hip new disco audience or whatever. You know, yeah. The Beatles don't really get a, a look in in a funny way, even though it's completely full of their songs. Yeah, you know.
1: yeah. I mean, the entire film is like we said before. There's you know aside from the narration, there's no dialogue. So the entire film consists entirely of just Beatles songs. Mm. But it it doesn't feel like there's uh, any sort of impression left by the band themselves on this film. It's just about the, the, the music, the, yeah. the melody and the lyrics and stuff. There's no sense of the band as people, their personalities, their backgrounds. Obviously, it's set in America, first of all, which, is, which causes a, an immediate disconnect with the group. But yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? To feel like you've got a film here that's dedicated to the Beatles and for it to feel so completely isolated from
2: what we know about that group yeah there's no affection for the beatles in this no. you mm-hmm. know it's it, it it's almost as if it's almost as if they're kind of like trying to write write them out of the story
1: and, and almost um literally as well i mean you know i think now is probably a good time for us to present the robin Gibb quote if you want <laughs>
2: to do the honors sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> With pleasure. Uh, this is this quote is on the Wikipedia page. Um, you can also read it in the Peter Doggett book, uh, You Never Give Me Your Money. So it says, before the film's release, uh, Robin Gibb announced, kids today don't know the Beatles, Sgt Pepper. And when those who do see our film and hear us doing it, that will be the version they relate to and remember. Unfortunately, the Beatles will be secondary. You see... I love the fact he said, you see. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 he's, like he just presented a formula, an equation. <laughs> yeah, like. Right. Ipso factor. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he says, you see, there is no such thing as the Beatles. They don't exist as a band and never performed Sergeant Pepper live in any case. When ours comes out, it will be, in effect, as if theirs never existed. When you heard the Beatles do Long Tall Sally or Roll Over Beethoven, did you care about Little Richard's or Chuck Berry's version? Now, (laughs) (laughs) a a bit to unpack there. Yeah. um, So let's set this in context. This is in 1978, which is the Bee Gees' sort of imperial phase. They are the biggest thing on the planet at this point. Yes. I mean, they they're huge. This is post Saturday Night Fever. They're riding the wave of of that whole thing. And and so,
1: additional context there. So the the soundtrack to the film Saturday Night Fever didn't come out until after the production of this film started. So they didn't end production of this film as the next big thing. I think, if anything, their involvement in this film is probably uh, them still trying to find some things in their career that can help boost their profile. Mm. But it's actually in during the production of this film that that soundtrack comes out and ends up becoming the biggest selling soundtrack of all time. Yeah. At the time. So, yeah, so you're right. At the time of this film's release, they are... Like the the biggest thing on the planet right
2: yeah yeah um but i mean you know sort of (laughs) like like given this given the context like this is an incredibly it's obviously a really egotistical thing to say it's incredibly churlish and discourteous and what he's kind of misunderstood is this idea and and perhaps in his defense at this point the, the sort of pop music has not been going on for long enough that we know that there's this template where like these bands don't you know will just like as far as he, he is aware the beatles might disappear yeah because yeah. no, there's, there's no it, you know the, the fact that they're the fact that they're still well known sort of eight years after they split up is quite remarkable i,
1: I think it, i think it's really easy to uh, make fun of him for this quote oh, yeah. <laughs> right? and, oh very as, yeah. <laughs> as we have discovered yeah. and will continue to discover but i do there is definitely something in this idea that uh, there's no precedent yet for a band to have established a legacy mm. at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we don't know yet what that looks like. And the idea of doing a cover version and a cover version being more successful than the original is is a possibility. Yeah. So, you know, I can understand him thinking about that, especially in their current position as ma- massive mega superstars. This is also happening at a time when the Beatles are not only less fashionable, but there's a bit of a vacuum there. Like, he's ad- directly addressing that vacuum, right? The Beatles have split up all of the individual pieces have gone on to have solo careers and there isn't really anything else happening with the Beatles back catalogue at that time. Yeah. So I think he is kind of assuming that it that there is time for a new generation to rediscover some of these songs.
2: Yeah. Well, yes and no, because I, I I don't, I mean, the rediscovery of these songs doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to view that as with any sort of amount of respect Mm. To, yes to I the, see the creators mean, yeah. of those songs yeah
1: it's not a rediscovery is it it's a it's a you know discovering this new version as if it were the original
2: yeah, yeah. and it's interesting you know when he says did you care about little richard or chuck berry's versions of long tour sally or Roll Over beethoven like what he's failing to understand is the beatles really did care about yeah. those originals they were incredibly respectful to the original artists and they championed them wherever they could Mm. They they were always promoting the original artists. And in fact, those artists sold a lot more with mainstream, with white audiences, you know, it's mainly sort of black rock and roll and R&B acts, who then the sales of their records did a lot better through the Beatles covering them and then championing them. So he's sort of thinking of this as an arrangement whereby we're taking over and everyone forgets what went before. That's not what the Beatles did at all. Like, you know, they, they had influences, but they respected them and they championed them always.
1: Yeah. No, that's fair. I think it's also fair that we should dissect this quote at, to this extent, 45 years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something that he probably said to a journalist at some point, then the above once. Right. <laughs> and it's going to forever dog him that, um, that he put this film and these, these
2: songs recorded with a
1: soundtrack on such a pedestal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But also it's interesting that the Bee Gees, uh, even at this point, they're not popular just as sort of like teen idols. Uh, they're proper songwriters mm. and they're known as songwriters. Yeah, right? But like, like the ego in him is sort of saying, like, we're going to take these songs and make them our own. Yeah. As opposed to, like, well, I mean, I mean, you guys are great songwriters, obviously, self-evidently. You write your own Sergeant Pepper and do yeah. and do your own musical, which but, but you could, also, by the way, with the back catalogue you have. Like, yeah, but also, like, that's what's interesting. There is that the
1: versions of the songs that you do aren't particularly beefyfied.
2: No, no right? not right. They're not very,
1: like we said before, faithful to the original versions yeah, in the first place. Yeah. It's just them singing it and not. With any particularly great amount of creativity, yeah, um, and, and and you're right, they are songwriters. It makes you wonder why, as songwriters and as established songwriters, they would put so much stock in the commercial success of what is essentially a
2: covers album at this
1: point in their career. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a totally
2: odd one. Yeah. And you know it's it's hubris, of course. You know because like this, it really damaged their reputation. Like the re- critical reception to this film, that like, this was like widely panned when it came out. It was a joke, and it, like everyone hated it. And it made people think very differently about the about the Bee Gees. You know the Bee Gees always seem to. I don't know if you saw that documentary about them that came out a year or two ago, which is very good. But I didn't have a sort of great sense of the sort of overall arc of their career, but there's so, so much sort of rise and fall in it. Mm. They're always sort of right on top and then uh, sort of, because they sort of rode the disco wave and then that whole sort of, uh, then that whole sort of disco sucks movement came along, yeah. and you know, and then everyone hated them again for a while, and so then they started writing songs for other artists, and so you know they were writing all these songs for sort of Diana Ross, you know, sort of Chain Reaction and stuff like that. Nobody really realised these were written by the Bee Gees, who were re- really uncool at the time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you look at those songs, and you think, oh, these songs are brilliant, you know. So yeah, their theirs is a theirs is a story that's like a really interesting one in general. I think this also might be a good
1: time for us to by association talk about robert Stigwood as yeah. well and his relationship with the bgs uh, as the sort of main producer or owner of the production company for this film the context for this film coming about is interesting as well because of the work that robert Stigwood did but also he has previous with the beatles anyway before this
2: film came about so yeah like i i can't quite remember what it is there was a point at which he was going to buy part of NEMS from Brian Epstein. Is that right? I think it
1: was that... um, So Brian Epstein actually encouraged him to merge his then company with NEMS. Right. So that happened, I believe, in 1966. Okay. And uh, at that point, Robert Sigwood and Brian Epstein were working closely together, you know, in that sort of under that NEMS umbrella. Yeah. At that point, uh, when Brian Epstein actually died a year later after that agreement uh, there was some talk of Robert Stigward then taking over his place and yeah. the Beatles were quite vocal about them not being happy with that arrangement at all Yeah, I think originally Brian Epstein brought Stigward in to, to help manage the other artists that were operating under the sort of NEMS label, right, right, um, to allow Epstein to focus purely on the Beatles. Yeah, okay. So the idea then that Sigurd would, would take over Epstein's place, and, and the, obviously the Beatles being unhappy with that, led to him then forming uh, RSO Robert um, Sigurd Operations, uh, which is the production company for this film. RSO were responsible for Saturday Night Fever, uh, but also Grease which would yeah. come around at the same time as it. So two massive smash hit films. Yeah, Saturday Night Fever was based on a, I think it was an article in New York Times, I believe, but obviously Grease was based on a Broadway play as this film was also based on a Broadway play. So yeah. he had, I guess, kind of a, a bit of a formula for sort of turning these films into sort of music um, runaway successes. So at the time of this release, again, to give context to that, Robin Gibb quotes, Not only are the Bee Gees the biggest band on the planet at that time, but also this, by all intents and purposes, should follow on from a series of successes that have come out under the RSO label. So everyone should have been expecting, and not not only that as well, but also it's, it's the Bee Gees following Saturday Night Fever and Grease with a film based on the songs from the greatest band of all time. Yeah like the anticipation for this film like the the events that this film should have transpired you know, it, it should have been sort of you know palpable at the time of release and i think that's why this was such a reputation damaging release yeah, yeah because it, it you know to, for that to happen for it to be universal negative reaction mm. uh, to it is just one of those things that just going, going to destroy everyone's careers involved yeah,
2: because all the elements are in place, aren't yeah. they? You know, and actually, and actually it's, the interesting thing is like, given that it's quite easy to watch it now and think, "Oh, this is a bit of a knockabout joke," and and actually, like all the people in in it are people who, with the benefit of hindsight, you think, you know, the the, the Bee Gees sort of ha- have been a bit of a joke at various points in their career, and like they are a band who lots of people would look back on now and think they're quite cheesy. Which is kind of fair enough, you know, there yeah. t- times in their career that definitely were quite cheesy. but And so it's kind of easy to think of it that way. But actually, in context, when it came out, you're right, like this is bears all the signifiers of an absolute surefire bona fide hit. And so the choices they made in it, it, it are quite odd ones because there's money in this. You know, There's money has gone into it. You can see in the production design, things like the hot air balloon shot and things like that you're sort of looking at that and thinking, oh, like you spent a bit on this. Yeah, yeah, Like definitely. the way it's shot and the fact that there's a hot apple in there at all, you know, so it cost a bit of money. But the, but the thing is written by, I think this guy's name is Henry Edwards. That's and, right, yeah. And uh, he's a sort of music critic, I think, or something like that, you know, who just who's never written the narrative thing exactly, before.
1: Yeah, but, and, and I think this, this points back to, you know, you, you used the word hubris earlier uh, around that quote. I think this comes back to that. It, it strikes me that you have... Robert Stigwood, who has had these successes and feels like he has the formula nailed down for success. Mm. So actually he all what he's got are the bare bones of a successful film, which is uh the rights to use the songs from the Beatles Back catalogue. Yeah. The Bee Gees as a sort of star group that he wants to promote yeah. um as as you know, as he is their manager. And then the actual sort of the nuts and bolts of the film, I don't think he feels like then there needs to be an awful lot of effort to make those come together. So Ooh. he just hires this guy who's, you know, uh, who wrote, I think, he, I think he wrote like a music article that he quite liked. So he's just like, uh, you know, yeah. can you write this film for me? <laughs> Basically, with, with no sort of prior experience or screenplay experience uh, before or since.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And it sort of makes me wonder that maybe this is uh, like we, you know, we see a lot, you know, when when we record these episodes and when we sort of, Share the episodes. And we talk to people on social media, and you get you get to realise there's quite a lot of narrative depictions of the Beatles that are, that fans have uh, a, a lot of issues with. So you think of films across the universe. Mm. It, yesterday, in particular, is one I'm thinking of. You know, we've done episodes about about both of those, and you know, and I think we uh on on the social media channels. There's a few people saying, "Oh, I can't stand that film," you know, and I think. There has always been a thing, quite a reasonable thing. There's nothing wrong with it. Of people, like all uh, film depictions of the Beatles, or sort of use of their songs performed by anyone other than them in films, I think there is always a thing that fans will say: "It's you've you've got it wrong." Like this is not how I want these things to be depicted, which is completely fair enough. I agree in lots of cases as well. You know, Um, I wonder whether this sort of set the template for that in a in a way i the sort of the the sort of grand folly of this whole thing yeah that 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 was maybe this was the this is probably the first time their songs have been used in in a way like this in such a big a big budget way right yeah Yeah.
1: and i I think yeah i think you're probably right and um it's interesting isn't it because i think that it's probably the first time that the songs have been used in this way but it's also immediately apparent that this whole venture exposes the, you know the word you use their folly of doing so yeah. You know the, this idea of the, the songs being a uh, legitimate art form to be used and utilised in different ways removed from the band themselves yeah you know and actually it makes you realise that that doesn't always work out that way you know mm. there needs to be more careful consideration about how these songs should be used in order for them to be effective in, in that way because so, so much of what's value about the songs is wrapped up in the band itself performing them
2: yeah yeah i think you know it's almost you know like the you know the Bee Gees are sort of the canaries down this coal mine i suppose yes. you know, yeah yeah, of, yeah. Of sort of being the first to sort of blunder into it and think ah this would be fine oh be- everyone loves the beatles songs right so we'll just do those mm. and everyone will be like well we like the Bee Gees and we like the beatles but it, it makes this you realize
1: how much of uh what everyone enjoys about the beatles is the full package yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So I mean, we we always talk about, you know, obviously all of their songs are great, right? We talk about the songs all the time and how great those are, but but there is something extra magical about them performing the songs.
2: Yeah, that that is for me where most of the magic is, and actually, I think it's one of my main criticisms of yesterday is that that magic is missing, and yet yeah. the film fails to get across what a world without them would be like. Yes, but but yes, I think it, you know, it's almost as if this was the first time someone just sort of blundered in and thought well we'll we'll, we'll do this all these things fit together great uh, without realizing which to be fair that it given the context of 1978 they might not have had the benefit of the hindsight that we have now that these songs are kind of sacred somehow mm. and that meddling with them you know it, you'll get burned you know they're like you know it's the end of indiana jones and the last crusade the guy has, they're in the treasure room at the end and the guy goes and picks up the most expensive thing and yes. he immediately gets turned <laughs> to dust because he failed to recognize what the cup of a carpenter really looks like. That's exactly what's happened. Great. To him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. This is. <laughs>
0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Uh, It is worth pointing out that the film was a success at the box office. Yeah, like we talk about, you know, obviously we talk about it as a big critical failure, but mm-hmm. it did make back its money.
2: Um, so and soundtrack album did well as well. I think, soundtrack it? album did very well. Yeah. So uh,
1: the the film itself, um twenty point four million. Uh, the production budget of the film was actually thirteen million. So it did its numbers, and also as we've mentioned plenty of times before in this podcast, this film would have been made at a time when there wasn't really much in the way of what a home entertainment release. Might be mm. so. As far as they're concerned, they did the job. Reviews be damned. Sure, you know it's, it's made back the money. So yeah, of course, great. Um, but yes, the soundtrack went on to become quite a success, and actually, a lot of the songs uh, individually went on to become successes. Yeah. Um, the most successful, or certainly, I guess, perhaps the one that's most appreciated even now, uh, George Martin, I'm sure, will be very pleased to hear, is uh, "Earth, Wind, and Fire's Got to Get You Into My Life." Yes the one song that he didn't produce <laughs> yeah that's a fantastic <laughs> version it's a great version
2: I was alone I took a ride There's a, there's a. I had a CD. I must. I've probably still got it now. That's. It, it's called. I think it's called the Soul of Lennon McCartney. And it and it's all sort of R and B and Motown acts covering uh, Lennon McCartney songs. Oh, and, cool. that, and that was on it. And it's fantastic. And to be honest, I till yeah. I saw this film, I didn't realize that this film was the source of that that version. But yeah, it's it's a brilliant version.
1: Has it got... Um, Stevie Wonder did a great version of We Can Work It Out. That is not, not on an, it, but, oh, I, but I do like that. Yeah. so good. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and you know what's interesting? Because I was thinking one of the reasons why I like that version so much and why I think it stands out as one of the better tracks on his album is because it's actually doing something different with that song. Yeah. Which most of the songs on here aren't really trying to, to sort of stray too far from the original. The other sort of successful song uh, on here was aerosmith's come together yeah which actually doesn't stray too far from the original It's actually quite close to that but yeah. there, there's just an extra sort of like rock effect added to sort of like the sleaze guitars that, that come with that that just works really well joe perry's guitar work on that is, i think is really really good yeah
2: yeah Yeah, no, they do. The Aerosmith do a really good job with it. Yeah, the the rest of it is, is they're all. Uh, it's funny because you know, as it's, I it's, it's said, like there's a there's a dissonance between sort of. I'm going to come back to what Robin Gibbs says. You know, <laughs> that, 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 there's a dissonance between that that sort of discourtesy and the fact that you would think like how close the cover versions mainly are is like, it, oh, these are sort of quite affectionate tributes. But as we said, like they, they seem to have been done without any real affection for the original artists but then i, I do think and the bg's are obviously fantastic at singing harmonies but what they do have is that uh, because barry uh, had sort of learned that that sort of his sort of signature falsetto thing by this point point. Uh, and so that is kind of uh, the top register in all of those harmonies and it just um <laughs> it just means they just sound bgified all yes. the time you know yeah. like it, when they're singing you know do you need anybody you know to the you know the call and response in little help from my friends you yeah. know uh, you, you just sort of it's it sometimes I uh, listen I, li- I like the BGS, I like uh, I like the disco stuff I, I like when he sings that way but sometimes it just sort of cuts right through you, there. <laughs> yeah, no, <I> agree. <laughs> you know.
1: there's actually um, it's a really good point because there's the the bit at the end of the film where they sing A Day in the Life mm. uh, and it's fascinating how this came to be where barry Gibbs starts singing that song out of grief because yeah. we've reached a you know post strawberry fields death in the film and everyone's very sad yeah but then when it gets to the point of what we understand to be the paul mccartney bridge in that song it says woke up got a bed drag to come across my head it's very cheery. He suddenly he go, it yeah. It's like a smash cut from him being really, really upset yeah. to him leaping out his front door, literally dragging a comb across his head with a big smile on his face, and then yeah. going into sort of you know big commercial, successful rock band stuff. Yeah. It is like presented as we go back into the rest of the song as a vision or a dream or some sort of different kind of scenario mm. or memory. I don't know, but it's um, but it's it's a real jolt when that happens. But there is the bit at the end of that when he sings the R's in A Day in the Life and the rest of the band are singing them around the microphone and he comes in and puts the headphones around mm. his head and something, that's that's like the BG's harmonies, right? It seems yeah, like yeah. that's where they can do what they do well in a Beatles song because it's literally just some R's yeah. <laughs> in a bit and it works well.
2: and had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream
1: but, and it's also, it's a bit weird when I think that I did, after that moment in the scene, uh, he ends up singing, uh, I'd love to turn you on, with a hand on each of his brother's thighs. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly what I thought. He, knelt, he kneels down in front of them, um, yeah. and he's obviously, they're obviously supposed to be sort of consoling each other in this moment of grief and stuff, but the words he's actually singing are, I'd love to turn you on. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah it's fun. but you see like this is this is a good example of how uh, one of the things about as we said this isn't quite a jukebox musical but like for uh, for sake of argument that is the way the songs are being used here i.e. you're sort of taking existing songs that the audience already knows and you're plugging them into a story and writing a new story around them now the way you use those songs most of those songs are not going to fit your story exactly so what you're looking for is for them to convey a broad tone Mm-hmm. um so like it, it, in across the universe that is broadly done pretty well i think yeah. like you know th- there's there's lots you know you think the way that, that sort of revolution was used in that you know it's quite yeah, then, so when he throws
1: open the door and literally a picture of chairman Man. <laughs> <laughs> of course You'll never yeah. forget that but yeah. <laughs> um, i always think of i was in that film as well when um, there is a sad moment in between the characters and they sing blackbird yeah and it's like that has nothing to do <laughs> with that and and the it implied meaning in that song does not apply
2: to their situation at right, all. But right. it's a sad song and yeah. they're sad. Yeah, so that'll do. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, it it, it. it in Across the Universe in general, it's, it, it, it's done fairly well. Um, yeah. Here, um, they... So in, in terms of fitting things into the story, um, a song like A Day in the Life is a sort of good example of... Uh, because it, A Day in the Life has sort of two... Uh, maybe three three sort of movements in it if you like or at least sort of has one movement it's not quite song middle eight then back to main song like the sort of woke up got out of your bed got out of bed is a sort of different movement to the rest of the thing and it's such a complete tonal shift in the song that what it suggests from a storyteller's point of view is that i can move the story along here and give it a bit of urgency with the woke up got out of bed so maybe i mean what you would do in it, it usually is um Barry Gibbs starts singing it uh, because he's sad, because of the funeral he's just been to. <laughs> sure, <yeah. laughs> and um, and then the woke up, got out of bed thing could be the bit where he sort of pulls himself out of that funk. Yeah. Which and, is what I thought that moment was. Right. right? Yeah.
1: Okay, well, this is time moved forward now. Yeah. This
2: is now, we're going to do a time
1: jump to some point in the future where uh, we're now going to work towards a conclusion of the film yeah. because everyone has grieved and now we are left with repairing the damage that has been done
2: yeah and, and actually you could have broadly got away with that actually yeah like as, as a as a way to push yourself towards the big sing-song finale like, yes. if, like everyone's just gone actually you know sort like we're, we're, we're putting a positive spin on this whole thing and like you know and it would have been a bit flimsy but that but then the, the narrative uh narrative sort of changes in uh musicals like this are quite flimsy. And it's yeah. fine. The audience kind of accepts that. You know, you don't need to put in a thing where Billy Preston appears and, like, magics everyone back to life. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> you yeah know. exactly. While singing Get Back, because he's getting
1: everyone back to where they once belonged. Exactly. And that's just... That's fine. They don't need to. Have, they don't need to have learned anything from the whole thing. No, no. It, it can just be an epic waste of everyone's time. It's okay if that's the case. That's yeah. what Billy Preston is saying. Yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No. No one learns anything. No one is redeemed. <laughs> so, like, there is quite a good example of the way to use songs in in this way, and uh, that's "You Never Give Me Your Money," which is sort of towards the end of the film when Dougie Shears, played by Paul Nicholas, who's Billy Shears' brother, and Lucy uh they sort of they come across a load of money like which is the sort of um the money that's been made from this benefit concert that the band have been playing at the end and they decide to steal it so they start off with her singing to him you never give me your money um and so the, the lyrics don't exactly fit but they don't have to and then you get the bit where it moves on into the Soon we'll be away from here. Step on the gas and wipe that tear away. And yeah. the idea of like now we're going to run away with this money—it actually kind of works. It yeah broadly, yeah, broadly fits, but it's it's really the only time in the whole film where those two things marry up successfully. I
1: completely agree. I think I think the music in the rest of the film—they're used in different ways, but all of them are unsuccessful. There were, <laughs> there were there were three ways in which songs are used, other than that example you just given. There are three ways in which songs are used in the film. There is one which is that the song implies some kind of narrative purpose. Mm. You know, and it's supposed to drive the story along, but just doesn't. You just have the characters singing the songs and nothing creative is happening around those characters while they're singing their song. You're just watching the actors do that. Yeah. But in character, there's the second way the song is used, which is when you're just watching the band perform the song. Yeah like Earth, Wind & Fire, which is obviously great, but obviously the the band themselves, when they are just playing songs to a crowd. Yeah. And then you have the third one, which is where they have a song that they're playing because uh, they want to include the song in the film, and then they're just trying to add bits in that match the lyrics. Mm. And I'm thinking specifically of the moment in Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, where a pantomime horse comes in on roller skates, named Henry, and starts doing the waltz. Yeah. (laughs) It's a bit on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very much so, yeah, very much so. There's absolutely no need for that to happen in Heartland. <laughs> I know we've talked about this uh, a bit already, but it is curious to me that George Martin produced this soundtrack. Mm. There, there's, a, there's a sense, isn't there, of... Does George always need to be involved in any sort of like Beatles-related project? Yeah. Like, is it a thing that he wants to be doing or is it a thing that he gets hired to
2: do because he's closest to the, the
1: the work in the first place? Do you yeah. know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think because um, we've watched a few things now and there's been a few sort of Beatles related projects, sort of f- film and sort of music based that obviously sort of jazz has taken over from him now. Mm. But George was always sort of brought in and and it's sort of, it it's a it's a respect if you like and again it's the, it's the idea that this stuff is the holy grail so you have got to bring in this guy because he he he's the, the closest to it and also to to not bring him in would be kind of disrespectful yeah that kind of thing and also he's sort of you know he was part of that the whole Apple thing which like Giles very much is now, yes. you know you know it, it it is very much part of that whole deal but again in 1978 i don't think that context existed but no. no one was really thinking, like, oh, we need to do this these songs the proper respect. So George Martin is the only person for this. I think it was probably a bit more, I don't know, I think it's probably a bit more that he he actually just kind of fancied the idea. Mm. I wonder whether, when they do She's Leaving Home in this, which is the version sung by robots. The
1: computerettes, yes.
2: The computerettes, yeah. And I thought, oh, this is the first time George Martin has got to do the string arrangement for... She's leaving home because he was like, you know, famously didn't get to do it the first time around because he was on holiday. So, McCartney went out and got, was he called Mike Leander, I think he's called, um, who did it instead. Oh, yes, of course. And and George was always quite put out that he didn't do it. Yeah. And so, when they started playing this song, I thought, oh, I wonder if he's going to do something different with the string arrangement, i.e., to to kind of show like well this is what I would have done with it if you'd asked me something uh, that really serves the robot voices well in a song you know? <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah. <laughs> but the answer is no he he broadly just does a pretty faithful yeah. reproduction which is interesting in that sort of it, even George Martin at this point sort of recognises that this is the way these songs are yeah there, is, there probably isn't a better way to do them we
1: gave her most of our He sacrificed most of our lives He gave her everything money could buy Bye-bye Father snores as his wife gets into her dressing gown the letter that's lying there Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Isn't it? I think you're probably right. I think maybe I'm putting later day ideas on the fact that this might be the first time he's ever had to deal with this. So I just, I kind of am interested in this idea of whether or not George felt that there was endless room for exploration with these songs and yeah. therefore was always quite happy to work on doing new arrangements for the song or whether he was just like, I just don't know if I've got another arrangement for a day in the life in me. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I
2: don't know if that's um, if you ever felt that way or not. Well, yeah. Yeah. I th- and so he did. He did regret it, apparently. Well, I suppose that pretty much everyone involved with this film regretted it mm. in one, one way or another. Um, but it's interesting that when we were talking about give my regards to Broad Street um, and uh, cause I think Ringo refused to re-drum the old songs. Right? Yes, he did. Yeah, Because he was always like, well, like, I've already done it and it was great. And so um, why would I do it again? You know, uh, George Martin sort of would, would sort of go back and tinker a bit, but he still leaves the Even in this, he still broadly leaves the songs intact. Yes. Yeah. I know what you
1: mean. I wonder if he'd um. I, I, again, it's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? That I wonder if he might have also relished the opportunity to sort of play with the songs in his own time to his own. Desires, you know, as, as opposed yeah. to, especially later on in the Beatles' career, where a lot of the creative choices were being made by the band themselves rather than him. Yeah, you know. yeah, true. And these are all songs, almost all songs from *Sgt. Pepper* and *Abbey Road*. Yeah, uh, interestingly, they miss what? out. There's no White Album songs on here, is there?
2: Uh, not that I can think of. The Interesting, they, they've sort of
1: just chosen to focus on those two. I know there's. Nowhere Man obviously is is in there mm-hmm. briefly as well. Yeah, yeah, and got to get into my life.
2: Yes, that's right. But there aren't really any what you'd think of as early Beatles songs no. in there. I think I'm right in saying I don't think there's any of those in there. So that sort of gives it. It, it gives it a very specific tone. I, I think this is, by the way, down to the the specifics of which songs Stigwood had bought the rights to. Yes, yeah, that's fair. Uh and, and so it, exactly by which process he came to choose that exact cache of songs I and, don't know. And
1: also and sorry let's also call out that this is based on a existing theatre uh theatre production mm-hmm. right which is, would have already had the decision made around what songs are being used as part of um the the stories being told. Yeah. Obviously they've created a story around Sgt. Pepper. Um, and his character is Sergeant Pepper. So I guess that's the starting point.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, in, in, as much as the renditions are fairly faithful, there's a bit of sort of late 70s, uh, there's sort of disco elements to them, I suppose. In terms, You know, yeah. right? things like it, it, Here Comes the Sun is sort of done uh, pretty faithfully st- sung by Strawberry Fields. They come up with the, with the incredible idea to um, sing Here Comes the Sun as someone is waking up and the sun is coming up. It's brilliant. Um, which is just inspired, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it was sort of listening to that and and thinking that the the bass on this is incredibly busy. You know, if there's one thing in sort of the 70s in particular, Paul was often accused of like his bass parts were a bit too busy. But Paul's bass parts always served the song. Yeah. And this is just all over the
1: place. You, you played this to me just before we started recording. And yeah. it's literally like a series of Seinfeld musical segues <laughs> happening underneath this. Uh, this song It's, it's crazy, it really is crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah. Little darling, it's
1: been a long, cold, lonely winter. Little darling, it feels like years since it's been here. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, and I say it's alright. I, um, you mentioned before that uh, everyone kind of regretting being involved in this project. Um, we should call out as well that that includes the Beatles and they weren't involved in the project. So yeah. uh, apparently, Paul and Ringo, I think, went to opening night of the film, I believe, yes. yeah. and then were just weren't fans. Just no, even, you know, didn't 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 enjoy uh, themselves there. John and George didn't go yeah. uh, to that night. George was quite charitable. I think later on when he talked about this,
2: yeah. So he he was sort of quite magnanimous. Like, so um, he he had said, you, you know, none of us have any control over this. None of us wanted this thing to come out. Because there's a few things in the '70s where these things were coming out. You know, it's around the time of the Star Club tapes coming out. Mm. There's the Beatles live at the Hollywood Bowl, which they never really wanted to come out. This is because like Capitol had the rights to it and were just releasing. What they wanted and they couldn't even approve the artwork or anything it just just you know it, it just came out and the, and sort of there's a, a stage show called Beatlemania, which has been on broadway and then went to the west end which they uh, so i think they sort of it eventually uh, got legal action to get the thing stopped but anyway yeah so george you know at the time said yeah no, none of us wanted this to come out you know um but he kind of said that he, he could see that sort of Everyone involved had sort of worked hard on it, um, and he said. So talking about Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees, he said, "I think it's damaged their images, their careers, and they didn't need to do that. It's just like the Beatles trying to do the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones can do it better." Which actually, to be honest, like for George, yeah, that's a lot less acerbic than you'd expect yeah, him to absolutely. be about yeah. something like yeah. that. You know, yeah, I think really he, he's obviously looking at it and recognizing that, like, these guys have talent and mm. sort of. Realising that they the sort of hubris of them trying to ride on the coattails of the Beatles when actually they have the talent just to do their own thing yeah that seems to be where he's coming from I wonder if um, there's something in uh, I think the
1: you know we, we often talk about the fact that the Beatles always seem particularly wary of people making money off them yeah when, when it feels like that money is probably more theirs by right and normally that is uh, with that sort of you know you could argue with sort of a working class chip on their shoulder kind of thing it's normally businessmen businessmen coming in and finding ways to exploit their work yeah. in order to make money I, I wonder if the reason why he's a little bit more charitable in that is because he seems to be talking more specifically about the bgs and you're looking at you know it's just, it's artists talking about other artists and then respecting that there is a
2: sort of a common ground yeah, I think so. I get that impression, you know, that he sort of respects the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton as artists, yeah. you know. And, uh, and fair enough, you know, it's nice that he's coming at it from that point of view mm. rather than just kind of slagging them off, which yes. he absolutely could do, you know.
1: Talking of which, <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah. The, the film obviously has a lot of people in it, a lot of famous people, not famous faces. And particularly at the end, there is a, uh, a big old sing song where lots of, you know, you can play like sort of guess who with lots of different sort of celebrity faces in the crowd singing along to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Yeah. The question I have for you is who was your favourite person in this film
2: that probably shouldn't have agreed to be in this film? (laughs) Okay so in the crowd at the end the big sing along like Tina Turner's in there that's
1: amazing as well yeah
2: yeah which is which is great uh uh Dame Edna Everidge. that was incredible <laughs> that, that was that was really left field yeah, um, and, uh, oh, and uh, Robert Palmer as well. Of, uh, yes, Robert she, Palmer, right? She Makes My Day famous. Know? <laughs> yes, yes I mean, like, absolutely. There's a sort of interesting intersection where you, you kind of think of Robert Palmer as like a sort of cheesy mid to late 80s guy. Mm. But of course, he'd been around since the 70s. He was like a pretty credible soul artist, actually, right. around that time. Yeah, really.
1: wow. Yeah, I do feel like that whole sequence at the end is designed to be Look at all of these incredibly famous people in every shot we have. Mm. And actually, I don't know if it was different in 1978, but in 2023, I'm like spotting one every
2: one person (laughs) I recognize every like five or six shots. Yeah, there are a few people in there where I thought, oh, yeah, I kind of do recognize, you know, people. Yeah, you can sort of look at the list later and realize that, oh, Hank Williams Jr. is in there. And, uh, you know, Frankie Valley's in there, but yeah. if I'm perfectly honest, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, I, I, which is literally what I'm being asked to do. <laughs> first, <so. laughs>
1: I know that Bruce Johnson, the Beach Boys, is in there, I'm a big Beach Boys fan, but I uh, must admit I didn't spot him right, uh, okay. when, when it came there was There's a great thing in the IMDb trivia for this film, I don't know how true this is, I, I really hope this is true. For the trivia in this film, it says, for the finale of the film, it was decided that they'd assemble an enormous roster of celebrities to, to sing the reprise of... Sergeant Peppers' Lonely Hearts Club Band. Formal invitations were engraved and sent to virtually everyone in the entertainment industry. (laughs) The many who RSVP'd were treated to first-class transportation to Los Angeles, limos, luxurious hotels, champagne, a lavishly catered dinner, and private tents for each of the stars in the studio's garden room. Right. So essentially, it's just a gigantic way of enticing lots of famous people into the film so they could sell this big sort of celeb-filled number yeah. at the end of the movie.
2: Oh, imagine
1: the cocaine, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> through the, roof. the cocaine budget on this film must have been insane. <laughs> I will say again on the whole, I know we mentioned this earlier, but I do think that, for me, the majority of the issues that I have with the film, I know it's an easy target to pick at, but the majority of the issues are just the fact that without any dialogue in the movie from those characters, I feel like I'm just watching the Bee Gees wildly react to stuff that's happening around them rather than actually investing them as characters. Mm. And um, there's an interesting point that I that I saw or read or, some, um, or, or heard that was made about the film, which is that they were cast and actually the decision to remove dialogue from the characters was made because they obviously have British accents, but they are playing American characters in a fundamentally American sort of town yeah um and it's just be too jarring which makes sense in that way but in that case don't cast them <laughs> or or re you know set the film somewhere else you know yeah, yeah um but yeah fundamentally that's that's the thing for me i feel like I'm, I'm watching a bunch of people uh react to a film rather than actually be in it which um <laughs> doesn't quite work for me
2: yeah I, I think you know the one thing um, as i said like maybe this sort of kicks off that idea of like trying to do something with the Beatles songs and turn it into a film. And it obviously is not successful. Um But I think one of the main reasons that it's not successful is that it is, n- it is not affectionate towards the Beatles at all. Mm. And like you say what you want about films like yesterday and across the universe, but the, the people who made those films l- love the Beatles you know, and it, and it comes through. They have an affection for those songs. So they they don't necessarily treat treat them exactly as you'd want them to be treated, but they have an affection for the songs, and they have a, a, an affection for what the band meant to people. This film doesn't do that at all. It sort of quite cynically takes the songs and like just sort of tries to make money out of them. Yes. Really, that's yeah. that's kind of in the end. That's what it's doing is trying to make money out of the Beatles. And I think you're right, and I think that you know, for sort of modern
1: day films that are made in a sort of similar vein, the talent involved in those will be, will, will make sure that the music and the band are treated with sort of due respect. Yeah, they will probably be fans of the, them themselves. I don't think there is a sense of the writer Henry Edwards being a fan of the Beatles that hasn't come through at all. No. Um, and there's no sense that the director as well, Michael Schultz, who we haven't spoken about, but he hasn't really... He didn't really have a um, noteworthy sort of body of work before this film, and he's worked. He, he's done lots of film and TV uh, stuff since, but nothing uh, of note. I will point out that um, one of the best reviews of this film that I read uh, came from The Rolling Stone, where um, the reviewer Paul Nelson mentions that Schultz, as, as the director, Schultz would seem to need direction merely to find the set, let alone the camera. <laughs> Which, um, <laughs> which is brilliant. But anyway, I think that kind of wraps everything up for 1978 uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But we would love to hear from anyone listening to this episode. Uh, let us know what you think of our discussion or of the film itself. Do you agree with what you think? Do you think that actually time will tell and maybe Robin Gibb <laughs> will come good on his quote <laughs> and this version will become the definitive version of the, uh, the, the album and the music as we know it. Please let us know you can reach us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod you can also leave us a 5 star rating or review on your podcast listening platform of choice otherwise we will see you again next week for another episode and until then bye bye
2: bye bye